Hey, Beaver Nation, it's time to get inside the huddle with the Damn Podcast. The Damn Podcast is your weekly ticket to Oregon State football and recruiting news. Here's your host of the Damn Podcast, BeaverBlitz.com publisher, Angie Machado. Welcome back to another episode of the Damn Podcast. I'm your host, Angie Machado, and with me, as always, this time from Boulder, Colorado, is our fearless beat writer, Carter Baines. Carter, I'm sounding pretty chipper right now after that loss yesterday in uh, at Colorado. How are you today? Still recovering from that, to be honest. That was, um, in my opinion, an inexcusable loss, and it you know, it hasn't really set in quite yet. Um, I, I haven't had enough time to reflect on it just yet. Um, I, I got to work first thing when I woke up this morning. If, if the listeners could see me right now, I, I look disheveled. My hair's a mess. I'm still in my <laughs> pajamas and I'm sitting in bed, but I wanted to get an early start on stuff today so that, you know, not only was it fresh in my mind, um, but also so that I could, you know, go explore Boulder a little bit. It's awesome. It's awesome. So uh, for our listeners that are listening, you know, we're, we're taping this Sunday morning and uh, we will uh, tomorrow, Monday is Coach Smith's press conference. Carter will still be in Boulder. So that means I get to make the trip to Corvallis tomorrow. I'm trying to frame my, my questioning to get the best answer. Uh, it's it's going to take some time here, but so let's just dive in. We're going to, Carter, I'm going to keep this probably a little shorter than normal, although I say that and like you brought up, um, we might just kind of go off on a, on a tangent here, but um, let's let's just sit down and talk about this game. Colorado coming into this game had the worst total offense in the country, averaging 251 yards a game offense. We know that the defense is okay, um, but 251 and the Beavers gave up 392 yards. What in the hell is going wrong with the Oregon State defense? That's a million dollar question, right? I mean, I, I don't think at this point we can say it's on the players anymore. And I mean, we've we've had this conversation, it seems like week in and week out now. And, you know, we talked at, at length last week about the coaching and the schematics and, and you name it on the defensive side of the ball. And, you know, I said I didn't want to disparage any coaches and, and whatnot. But I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves now, like this is a trend that has it reared its ugly head week in and week out for four years now. Um, and, and, and the this first season, couple years, you can give it a little pass, right? I mean, cause you're, mm-hmm. you're a new defensive scheme. A new defensive staff is building their players. They need to get their players in place. They need to get the scheme entrenched, but by year four, you know, it should be, it should be at least trending in the right direction. And this season, what you're seeing is the defense almost exclusively being the reason that Oregon state is losing games. Now I get that the offense isn't performing at the high level that we saw uh, in the non-conference at USC um, and in that second half against Utah, but the offense isn't the problem. It's, it is the defense. And you, you mentioned it, you know, Colorado comes into this game averaging 251 yards per game and you allow them to almost double that with an offensive unit that quite frankly, hasn't shown much ability to do anything this season. And that's no disrespect to, to their team because I do have a lot of respect for them, especially at, 
at the running back position. I mean, Jarek Broussard's the reigning Pac-12 offensive player of the year, but the um, the sum of the the sum of the Colorado offense's parts, uh, it's it's quite frankly just not great this year. It's and, and it's it's not good actually. It's it's probably the worst in, in the Pac-12, and you can't allow that group to score 37 points. I, I know that the total was skewed a little bit because uh, the game goes to double overtime, but that, that's too many points. And at the end of the day, way, way too much yardage, um, both on the ground and, and through the air, quite frankly. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm looking, I know we talked about this last week, but it was talking about, um, we were talking about coach Tibisar's scoring defense as his time at, as a offensive coordinator right now, um, Oregon state ranked 76th in the nation in scoring defense. Um, looking back at coach Tibisar's seven years as D coordinator, that would actually rank as his best scoring defense of his career. 76. Again, not trying to throw people under the bus, but that needs to be better. That number needs to be significantly better. If the beeves are going to, to take the next step. Um, what? I worry. I, I'm. I'm gonna pause. I'm gonna stop you right there. Yeah. I worry that those who can make decisions will look at that number and say, "Hey, progress." Trending in the right direction. Yes, I worry because, too. Because, because yes, it is progress. But I mean, we just said it. It's not good enough. And I know that there have been so many conversations throughout the fan base the last couple of weeks about you know, accepting mediocrity and demanding better. And this is one of those instances, that's one of those instances where that comes into play. Obviously the scoring defense under Tibisar this year is better than it has been in the past, but is anybody sitting here and saying that it's good enough? Like, I don't think so. And nobody should, to be honest, because it's, it's not like, it's just objectively not good enough because we're seeing Oregon state lose games to teams that they should be. So that's, that's the biggest thing I think right now. And, and looking at this, so that's 76th in the nation right now with three games remaining, it definitely could. And if that's the best that your defensive coordinator has ever, that's, that's the high watermark is what we're seeing this year. And that to me is Oregon state is losing games because of the defense. It's not, you know, the offense, yes, has had some struggles, and we can talk about the offense in a minute. But, um, yeah, I, with you, I'm concerned. We have a, a head coach. This is his first year or first time as a at first stint at head coach. Will he look at this and say, well, but this is the best he's ever done. We're on the right trajectory. I, I, I don't think Oregon State has time. I do not think they have the time the luxury of time to give much more time than that, because I, I see a fan base losing faith quickly. What, what are you seeing? I, it looked like a great OSU crowd in Boulder yesterday. Um, but I, I just see from the lodge and those that are on the lodge and, and paying 10 bucks a month to, to be on Beaver Blitz, they're your diehard fans and they're losing faith. You know what? I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer. I mean, I know it my answer would be, do you think that the, those in the decision-making um, position of Scott Barnes and Jonathan Smith, and technically it should be Jonathan Smith making the decision, but Scott Barnes, I guess, could, could trump that. Do you think they have the wherewithal to actually make potentially a hard decision? 
I really don't know because to this point, they haven't had to. You know, with it, in your first four years rebuilding a program, you want to keep as much continuity on your staff and on your roster as possible. And that's what Oregon State has done. I mean, this is essentially the same coaching staff that came in three and a half years ago. Um, but now you're at the point where you do have to look yourself in the mirror. And that's something I reported on last week after the, the game at California was how the players and coaches, you know, both said in the postgame press conference, we're taking accountability. We're, we're recognizing that these deficiencies need to be rectified. Um, things need to change. And I, I really hope that that translates into some of the off-season decision-making that, that the people in power um, are, are really, they're going to have to make. Um, you know, this is, you're reaching a boiling point, I think. Yeah. I mean, do you think Coach Smith's leash is getting shorter? It's tough to say. I mean, I, I don't think that there are many people out there uh, in Beaver Nation that would say Jonathan Smith isn't the guy for the job. Um, I think the frustration more lies on the defensive coaching because at the end of the day, what you're seeing is the offensive coaching staff's perfectly fine. And we know that Jonathan Smith is, is the leader of that. Um, and, and everything he's done to build a culture and, and recruit like literally every thing outside of the defense has trended the right direction. So I don't think um, a, a short leash is warranted for Smith. But that being said, part of his job is to make big decisions such as managing your staff. And if you recognize that there is something that's not working on a particular side of the ball or at a particular position, it's on you to make a change there. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm not calling for him to fire any, but I'm just saying he needs to, to look at this and, and determine if it is necessary. And I, I think a lot of people would tell you that it is. And the way things are trending, I, I'm starting to think that, you know, that's probably what needs to be done. But like I said, I'm, I don't get, I don't get paid the big bucks. So I'm, I'm not the one making the decisions that ultimately comes back to Smith. Yeah. And it is, it's a hard discussion to have. I mean, it's hard to, you know, basically say that someone whose livelihood is depending on this job is, is not getting the job done. So let me ask you this question. We've seen a lot of programs make those decisions mid-year. Do you think it would be so that they can kind of maybe get a jump on, on the, the coaches? Do you think well, this would be, I mean, you saw it this week with Colorado comes in with a, a new offensive line coach. Yeah. They fired, you know, two weeks ago and, what has Colorado done the last two weeks after firing him? I mean, they've scored a bunch of points against two fairly solid defenses. I mean, Oregon's defense, we know how good it is. And, and Oregon State, you know, as, as many shortcomings as it does have on the defensive side, it is better this year. Yeah. Um, and so for Colorado to, to go and average about 33 or so over the last two weeks, there's something to it, man. There's something to making a coaching change in the middle of the year. I mean, yeah. Do you, I mean, is this something that you could see um, making a change now and saying, let's put, let's say Trent Bray in as a, as an interim D coordinator, but at least it gets you the head start um, looking for your next DC. It does give you a head start. And I, I think it, it's a tough situation because the grass isn't always green, right? And you never know what you're going to get when you bring in an, an interim and and ultimately a replacement, you know, a, a permanent replacement, you don't know exactly what you're going to get. Um, 
And so making a change midseason, sure, it could go the right way. It could go the way that that Colorado's offensive line coach situation went, but it could also go terribly wrong. Um, look at USC, you know, that they fire Clay Helton, who of course wasn't getting the job done either. Um, but under an interim staff with with Dante Williams at the helm, I mean, that program has fallen off the, the face of a cliff. Um, so, so you really don't know what you're going to get. And, you know, whether that means you ride this out and, and you hope that the defense plays well enough to get one more win and, and you snap that bowl eligibility streak, or you make a change right now and, and hope for the best, I don't know. But like I said, you, you just don't know what you're going to get in a, in a situation like that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I mean, that's, that's ultimately a question that has to be asked. Um, do you think Oregon State needs to pay more money? I mean, do you think they, that Barnes needs to open up the purse strings? Because one of the discussions we've had in the lodge is, you know, you have Coach Smith, who's an offensive-minded coach. So he, he and Lindgren can run that side of the, of the program. Open up the purse strings and get, I mean, I say like a Kalani Sataki, but you need a defensive-minded coach. Do you take a chance on maybe a guy that needs to rehab his, his reputation? Uh, do you, I mean, God, Jimmy Lake's under fire right now for, a little altercation and um, in Montlake. I was just, I was just going to bring up that name. And I, <laughs> we talked, we talked earlier in the year too, about, you know, the potential for Justin Wilcox to maybe be needing a job at the end of the season. Um, that's it's all conjecture at this point, yeah, you know, with, mean, with what, with what names are going to be available, but, but do you, but do you think that Oregon Barnes State needs to open? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that it a hundred percent does. Because we know the lack of funding that this athletic department has um, has devoted to football. We know that Jonathan Smith is, even though he's in his first stint as head coach, we know that he's severely underpaid. Um, I, I think that he has proven that he deserves more than what I believe is the lowest salary in the Pac-12. Um, and you, you kind of hinted at this too. If you have a rookie staff like you do with, with Smith. Um, not to say that his assistants are, you know, under, under experienced or anything, but it is, it is a new staff. Um, you, you need to invest in areas that you may be lacking. And it's clear that Oregon state's lacking on the defensive side because your two best coaches, actually I'll say three best coaches, in my opinion, Smith, Lindgren and Mahalachek are all on one side of the ball. And you got to make up for that somewhere. So whether that means, um, you know, providing Trent Bray with a raise and, and promoting him to defensive coordinator, whether yeah, but, that's... Okay, but stop, stop for a second, because I, I've seen that. I've seen that thrown out there, but is that the answer? Trent Bray's never been a DC either. I mean, I'm under the, I mean, in my opinion, Oregon State needs to go after a proven commodity defensive-minded coach. And if he had head coaching experience, so much the better because they need someone that can run that side of the ball completely. Um, and even if that means they have to pay seven to, or 900,000, you know, to get it. Um, I think that's the answer, not taking a chance on another unproven coach. Yeah. I mean, believe me, I'm, I'm right there with you. I was, you know, just kind of repeating what I had heard yeah, some, of yeah. our, some of our readers and, and some of the other fans uh, that I've heard from um, that, you know, give Trent Bray a shot and see what happens. I think the only way that that comes to fruition is if Tibisar is let go in the middle of the season and Bray becomes the interim. I don't think that Oregon State would promote from within 
after the season. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, Oregon State's probably going to go to the outside if Tibisar is let go. This is still a big if because I mean we've been given no indication to this to this point that he's even on the hot seat. So if if a change is made, I think they should. I think they have to look elsewhere. Um, look for maybe a head coach that is let go somewhere. You mentioned Jimmy Lake. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> Gary if Patterson. Available. I'm all for Gary, Gary Patterson. Patterson. Great. Jake Dicker at, at Washington State, the interim head coach there. We know what he's done on that Washington State defense. If he's available at the end of the year, he's got to be probably the first or second guy that, that Jonathan Smith calls. And um, yeah, I mean, like I said, you just, you have to find somebody with a proven track record of success on that side of the ball, because you said it earlier, Oregon State's running out of time. It's losing its fan base um, as revitalized as it was after the hot start. It's starting to lose it again. And that the window for success under, under Jonathan Smith, I think is starting to, to shrink a little bit because we are in year four and you need to start to see results. Yeah. And, and I, you, you brought up something a, a minute ago about Jonathan Smith being the lowest paid head coach in the PAC 12. Well, he has no experience as a head. I mean, this is his first head coaching job and this is where the rubber meets the road. I mean, it's going to be maybe making some tough decisions um, and making those hard calls. If you're the manager of the program to make those happen. So um, I'm anxious to see what happens because this team, I think, like you said, the window of opportunity is really starting to narrow. And I think Jonathan has a, he has a longer leash than most coaches would have. I think Oregon state traditionally He's got the just, Scott Frost leash. Yeah, no, exactly. Him and Scott. Frost, and I get it. Right. And I think he's a great fit at Oregon state. And I love what he's done with the culture because when he came in, I have not seen a program with such a toxic culture ever. I mean, it was horrible. Um, so what he has done in, in four years, but at the same time, this is a results driven business. And um, yeah, I mean, especially with the, the downward trajectory we're seeing right now. Um, and this is a conference too. I mean, I, I think that anybody can beat anybody in a given day, um, top to bottom. I mean, I don't even, you know, Oregon, I know is in the college football playoffs, but if they were to face Georgia right now, demolished. I mean, that's the Pac-12 is not even in the same ballpark as some of these other schools. Let's, let's pause there for a second, because I think this is an important point. Oregon State should be able to go on the road and beat Colorado. It should probably be able to go on the road and beat California. But in this conference, what we have seen is that anybody can beat or fall to anybody on a given week. And it is so hard not to overreact to a big win or a disappointing loss, but we have to make sure that we don't do that because there, there is no reason Oregon State can't come back and win its final three games of the regular season. There's really not because it's already proven that it can beat teams as good as or ba- as bad as Stanford and Arizona State. And I, I don't think anybody in Beaver Nation would tell you that this team can't beat Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it's I entirely mean, possible, and then look at Utah. especially I mean, given the state of the Pac-12, that Oregon State could win out. I'm not saying it's going to. I'm not saying you should expect it, but you can't rule it out. But I think that's what makes the losses even more more um, painful, right? Is that if, if there was ever a down year top to bottom in the Pac-12, this is the year. And 
to see just some stupid stuff going on. I mean, just granted, Pac-12 refs are Pac-12 refs. I mean, it is what it is, but procedural stuff still, you know, this far into the season, Oregon State continues to be bit by just kind of silly penalties from time to time that um, I really thought. How many holding calls were there? Well, exactly. I mean, I, I thought. I was thinking to myself towards the end of the game, I think almost every offensive lineman had a holding call. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think Eldridge had one, but I'm, I'm thinking everybody else had one. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I would have did. to go back and check that. But and, and Josh Gray did. Yeah. Marco no, Brewer had one. Marco Brewer had one. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, but again, and then, but then the no call, you know, down in the, there was a total um, jersey grab holding down in the end zone late in the game. I don't know. Like I said, it's packed 12 refs, but I think that's what makes it more frustrating. The, the losses is the fact that Oregon state goes out and really takes down a really pretty strong Utah team. That's really coming on. That wins looking better and better. It's looking week. better and better. And, and then the loss at Purdue is looking even better after they beat Michigan state. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so that's besides the point, go but on, that, but then they go. So yeah, I mean, th- but then they go and lose to two. And I think Cal is better than their record, but two games that they should win, right? If, if there was ever a year Oregon State could have run the table, and I'm not saying go undefeated, but be right there in the talk of the conference. And then again, and, and we've talked about this week after week after losses is the, the missed opportunities and then the momentum that now you have two losses in a row. So how does that affect attendance next week? How does it affect recruiting? How does it affect boosters? I think boosters are the, well, the less of their, their worry right now. I, I think the answer, the answer to that is that it affects it poorly. Poorly. You know, and, and what, you know, coaches are going to start using it against Oregon State recruiting. Because Oregon State can't, on the recruiting trail, point to, come, we're building this, we're building this. This is year four. You should have the foundation pretty much built. I don't know. Okay, let's, let's switch gears here a little bit, though. Let's talk offense. I feel like we've kind of beat a dead horse week after week on defense and it, it's bad. So let's just, let's move over to offense. Um, so fall camp, you and I talked about the quarterback situation. Um, at the time, Chance Nolan was third on the depth chart. He was down at the, so we saw a few really strong games from him, like lights out. Lately, we've been seeing the Chance Nolan that we saw during fall camp throwing, you know, when he misses, he misses high, which can be disastrous. Um, I still like his scrambling ability, but what are your thoughts two third or three fourths of the way through the season on Chance Nolan? If he completes even three more of those long balls that he attempted last night, we're not, we're not having this conversation, but the fact that he did is is cause for concern because you you said it that's the chance nolan that we saw that was struggling in fall camp um and when he's at his best we know that he's capable of of hitting those deep balls we know that he's capable of completing 75 percent of his passes but the problem is you just don't know what chance nolan you're going to get on a week-to-week basis and as for for as well as he has played at times this year we can't ignore the fact that now Almost, you know, I, I guess when you combine last season and this season, he's pretty much had a full 12 game slate under his belt. More games than not, he's right around 50% or less. 
Um, and, and more games than not, he's throwing at least one interception. So the accuracy at this point, given the body of work that is essentially a full season now, we're seeing more of the, the Nolan that, um, that creates pretty major cause for concern than the Nolan that was a dark horse Heisman candidate after the non-conference. So, so I, what I, do you I think those changed with him? Because when he was looking good, he had confidence in the pocket. He stepped up in the pocket, planted his feet, made his throws. What I'm seeing now is a, is a chance Nolan who's got happy feet. He's um, not making correct reads. And, you know, and when he does decide to do a, a zone read, he doesn't make the right choice. What has changed? I mean, what do you think, what has killed his confidence? I guess you could say quality of opponent. I mean, the games that he is, he's had the most success in are, if, if we're being honest, against not very good teams, Hawaii, Idaho. Um, I guess you could say, you know, Purdue, you could throw them in there. Um, USC. Played pretty, but... played pretty well against Utah, and, and Utah's yeah. a good defense. But yeah, USC, as you said, we know that they're not performing performing nearly up to their potential. So yeah, I guess it's it's against teams that have underperformed or are just flat out bad on the defensive side that he's taking advantage of. Um, and then when you play against a good defense like a Cal or a, a Washington or, quite frankly, a Colorado, I, I think Colorado's defense is just fine, even without Nate Landman. Um, that's when he struggles. And I, I guess it's fair to question, like, can he compete against a Pac-12 quality defense? Like, that's a fair question, because to this point, more often than not, he hasn't played at a very high level against Pac-12 opponents. Do you think part of that is better opponents, or do you think that is just the body of work, the film out there, and teams being able to see what where his deficiencies lie? Well, probably both. And actually, those things kind of go hand in hand. I mean, if, if you have the ability to go in and, and see what Nolan's deficiencies are, and then go in and execute to that, I mean, that's the hallmark of a good defense. So I, I think that goes hand in hand. Talk about, let's, let's move on to wide receivers a little bit. Yesterday, Trey Lowe was the leading receiver. As a running back. As a running back. Huge game. Huge game, by the way. So shout out to Trey Lowe. Because not He's, only did he... I, I'll, I'll give a little spoiler alert here for the top performers piece that'll go out on Monday. Uh, Trey Lowe's the top performer. I was going to say, I mean, so he five was... receptions, 52 yards. And, and he was targeted five times. So he was, and, I mean, those are mostly like little screens, but still. Um, and then he also had uh, six carries for 60 yards. And a Averaging 10 yards a carry, had that 31-yard touchdown, which um, was tied with Luke Musgrave's 31-yard catch for the longest play from scrimmage for the Beavers. And um, yeah, he had one of the three, one of the three rushing touchdowns for Oregon State. And then yeah. he goes and, and leads the team in receiving. And yeah. I think, we didn't see much of him last year, obviously, because he wasn't eligible until the end of the season. He didn't play much at Washington when he was there. He was kind of buried on that on that depth chart early in his career. But when Trey Lowe came out of high school and was a very highly rated recruit um, out of Portland, this is what people expected of him when he got to the college level. And now he's kind of starting to come into his own and um I, I, it's really exciting. It, it really is exciting because he has the kind of talent. Um, he had, you know, the, the recruiting profile of a game changing player. And 
when Oregon State landed him, I, I think it was almost like a, you know, oh, this kid just didn't pan out at Washington um, type of reaction from from the fan base. But now you're starting to see, actually, Trey Lowe might have been, he might be just as good as we all thought he was. It just took him a little bit of time to to get an opportunity and and make the most of his of his touches. So I'm I'm thrilled with what we're seeing from him. He's he's really starting to come into his own. He's got a ton of momentum and. I think what he brings to this offense is um, is incredibly valuable. Yeah, and and another shout out. I've been kind of hard on him this year um, because I haven't. He hasn't lived up to my expectations. Is Luke Musgrave? He's starting to uh, get that little dropsy problem he had under control. He had a couple of drops, but um, no, he's had a couple really big catches. Trayshawn Harrison. Let's, oh, go ahead. let's talk about Musgrave real quick here. I think he's getting out of his own head. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think a lot of it, because what I saw from him in fall camp was a, what looked like the potential to be the best tight end in the Pac-12. And yeah. it's it's really funny for me to say that because I know what the fans have seen on game days just, I mean, isn't even close to that. But genuinely in fall camp, I rarely saw him drop a pass. I saw him make incredible diving catches. Um, he was my MVP of fall camp. Yeah. And what we've seen from him the last two weeks uh, is is more like what I saw in fall camp. And when he started to kind of turn things around, you could see like he was bobbling some catches, but hauling them in. And he just didn't quite look like he was fully confident in, in himself. But as the last couple of weeks have progressed, you're starting to see him a little bit more sure handed. He looks more confident out there. Um, and then, And that's great because I think as long as he's not in his own head, um, he's going to start to tap into that potential that I saw a couple months ago. Yeah, I agree. Seeing him in fall camp, he, he was the best player on offense. Trayshawn Harrison was targeted eight times and brought in three catches. What's your assessment there? My assessment is that he had the best play by receiver whole game. Um, I, I look at the drops and I say, that's, you know, that's obviously not good, but what he Some brings of those to are the offense. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And what he brings to the offense is, as we said with Trey Lowe, a guy who came out of high school with a, a high four-star rating. You know, he goes to Florida State and, and gets some playing time there. So, I mean, this is a guy who we know has a ton of potential. Uh, we know that he's a good player. It's just a matter of him, you know, kind of coming into his own. And the play that he made when. He, he broke off 30 yards after the catch on that screen. That is the kind of play you expect to see from a four-star recruit. You know, that's one of those plays where you get a guy out in space. He's got elite speed. Um, and he put a, an incredible move on that defender to get into the open field and just sprinted down the sideline, dive for the pylon and scored. That was, I think, one of the most fun plays of the season on offense, actually, just because I think we saw a guy with incredible speed finally show it a little bit. And that move that he put on the defender was, was one of the best one-on-one moves I've seen by an Oregon state player this year, maybe second only to Jack Coletto's whatever you want to call it for the first touchdown of the game. Yeah. That was a great play too, by Coletto. And I, another, I'd be remiss if I didn't call out champ Flemings because again, I can be hard on him, but um, his play, um, at the end of the game there to the, to catch the ball and then get out of bounds quickly um, was huge to set up and that Anthony 60 Gould. And, Anthony well, exa- Gould yeah. too. 
The punt return, he comes in for Trevon Bradford, who left with an injury. He returns the punt 26 yards. And then when Oregon State needs a couple more yards to get into Hayes' range, what does he do? Nine-yard reception, gets out of bounds with one second left. Incredibly clutch performance by Gould. Um, if, if he continues to get touches, we, we know what he brings to the field. It's just a matter of getting him opportunities. because You should have heard me. I- like the whole second half. I'm like, where in the hell is Anthony Gould? I mean, the guy has continued time and time again to make, come up with big plays. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I agree. I think we should start seeing more of him. I think he's earning that playing time. I, I'm right there with you. Well, for ha- having a shorter pod, we've actually kind of, we've kind of uh, covered a lot of topics today um, and we need to get Carter out the door so we can go explore Boulder a little bit. Um, this week, the Beavers face Stanford at home. I'm not even ready to go on record with any kind of prediction because not even close, but uh, two thirty kick at Reeser and uh, Beavs are still three weeks into this looking for their sixth win. Do you think I, I'm not even going to ask you, Never mind, Carter. I am not going to ask, um, go out, enjoy Boulder. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of the damn podcast. <laughs>